So the people who do have that shocking reaction to me, they got to mm-hmm. deal with it. That's not me. I'm still here to serve. Um, they need to be responsible for their emotions around uh, why it might be strange or uncomfortable to be working with me. Um, and I think that, you know, part of that responsibility for them to take inventory of their own emotions and actions is is far beyond this office space. You know, if they had that reaction right here and I don't choose to help them get through that reaction or those emotions, that means that they get to go home and do that work themselves. Mm. If they do so, and I'm not here to help them feel more comfortable of being around, being around black people. Welcome to Boss Locks. You are now listening to the next episode from our pilot series with today's episode featuring Anna Marie Smith. Now, if you listened to last week's episode, then you may recall me telling you about a company called Inclusion. Well, they're a tech startup that is creating a freelance marketplace and job board for underrepresented professionals. And they are getting ready to host their first networking event, and I really think you should go check it out. I myself am going to be there because... um, You know, if COVID has taught us one thing, it's that we can collaborate and work with people from all around the world, not just our own um, 15-minute commute. So um, anyways, I'll tell you a little bit more about it halfway through the episode, but um, as I think about today's episode and everything going on with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Aluatorian Salu, Rayshard Brooks, and countless others who were taken from us i'm i'm taken back to 2017 when lebron james responded to a racist vandalism incident at his home by sharing that being black in america was tough now it was a simple message that conveyed a lot to people who were really listening but as we've seen over and over again um other people just didn't quite get it um The concept that a superstar experienced hardship was a bizarre idea that was easily dismissed as they asked him to shut up and dribble. Well, in today's episode, we end up taking a deep dive into what it's like to be black in a city known for being progressive and how it can actually be anything but that for black people. I I really think you'll find what our guest today has to say. Um... I think you'll find it very interesting. So without any further ado, um, thank you for listening. And I'd like to welcome you to episode five, Leaving Liberated with Anna Marie Smith. Hello world, I'm your host, Walter Gaynor II. I would like to welcome you to Boss Locks. Boss Locks is a media company founded to redefine professionalism, encourage diversity and inclusion, and prove that natural hair and professionalism do coexist. Now, today, I have the honor and privilege of speaking with Anna Marie Smith. How are you doing, Anna Marie? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm, I'm still up for um, definitely testi- testifying to the point that uh, you can definitely rock natural hair and be professional, as I am currently on the clock. love that man love that thanks for taking the time while on the clock (laughs) well for those who do not know Anna Marie Smith she is a financial counselor based in the Asheville North Carolina area 
She also teaches classes on money management, credit, budgeting, and, you know, everyone's favorite money topic, debt. Now, um, <laughs> I have a bunch of questions to you. want to learn more about how I can get my own financial stuff in order. But before I dive into everything, like who you are, what you're doing, um, can you name three things that most people just don't know about you? Yeah, um, three things that most people don't know about me. Um, that I am born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, oh yeah. The specific reason that that's a shock is that there's only there's a dwindling twelve percent of Black people here in this city, um, and the rest is predominantly white. So people usually who are Black and live in Asheville are not um, born here. They maybe come from Charlotte or surrounding areas. Man, that's that's definitely that's definitely a surprise. Yeah, I know people react. <laughs> um, and two, um, I have uh, my mother has eight children, and we all grew up in the same home together. And so, um, modern day families don't typically come in a package like that where there are that many people in mm -hmm. a. Home. So, I'm one of eight kids, and we all grew up together under my mother's roof. Wow. And then three, um, something that people don't know about me is uh, I am uh, a nine, the number nine on the Enneagram. And if you don't know what Enneagram is, it's a, a pretty cool personality test, which it doesn't like to be called a personality test, but uh, it is. And the nine is um, on a scale from one to nine. I'm a nine and the nine is the mediator. So mm. that my position in this world is typically in between a lot of people and their differences um, where I'd stand mm -hmm. in the middle, try to see the best of both sides. And I, I end up seeing just that the best of both sides, even if the, the right side is extreme and the left side is uh, not um, mm -hmm. I'm in the middle and see the, the best of both. So you have the true balancing scale. Yeah. Wow. And what's that test called? You said the Indy? Enneagram. Uh, it's look a, that up. N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. Enneagram. Ah, gotcha. All right. We'll definitely want to touch on each of those. Um, I'll go in order. So born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina. Have you ever heard of um, CeeLo, North Carolina? No. I actually went to school in that area um, in middle school. It's right outside of Burnsville, um, really next to like Micaville, North Carolina. Wow, and that's super rural. Yeah, there was a boarding school out there. I went there for three years. Um, it, I remember they came down to like Charleston, where I'm from, and um, basically talked about the school, sound excited, so I went. But kind of living there, I realized, I remember one day in particular, I saw one other black family. It's the first time in like three years I had ever seen another black person there. It's a culture shock. Um, and so just from your perspective, kind of growing up in that area, that type of environment, like how was that like for you? Yeah, well, growing up in this area, honestly, Walter, when I was a little kid, um, we grew up in public housing. And so um, that in itself usually has uh, an explanation or a, a description of what life is like growing up in public mm -hmm. housing. But growing up, in Asheville, which is a 
somewhat of a rural area, but not necessarily. It's got a city vibe, but it's rural. Um, I really didn't understand to what extent it meant to live in a rural area because my mom was extremely protective of what we experienced. Mm -hmm. So our environments were often controlled by her. Um, I remember growing up in this massive public housing complex that I know of it today. But as a kid, I only thought that the space that we occupy on the bottom of that complex was all that existed. I didn't even know that there was a, a bigger piece of the, the projects, sort of seat. Um, I didn't know how big it was until I, I became an adult. And I was like, wow, this property is huge. But as a, as a kid, we only saw the bottom part of it, which was just shut off to the rest kind of, of staying it. in your area. Exactly. And so I think my life is kind of that where um, not only did my mom do it, to protect us, but I kind of do it for myself, being that I have never left this place. I've lived here my entire life. Um, mm -hmm. Here was controlled, so to speak. Um, meaning I exposed myself or my parents would expose us to only what we wanted or what they wanted us to see. And so, yeah, I got a narrow scope, but as an adult, I'd say that um, growing up or living here in this rural area as a person of color, um, is really difficult <laughs> honestly yeah. uh, it's about um it's like a, a 180 you know in terms of what i experienced as a kid and what i experienced as an adult um i'm i'm on the other side mm. of in terms of what i see and it's not pretty that's for sure noticing that you are only part of the 12 percent of people of color here is very difficult um you look for spaces and it's very challenging to find a space that represents you and your culture mm -hmm. um say that it's it's difficult today but i was oblivious as a kid hmm. so no Asheville has this um the perspective when people talk about the city and living there they always refer to it as a very progressive place um do you find that it's true for you in your own life um that is not my truth no um i hmm where that perception has come from, that Asheville is progressive. Um, it's progressive if you were um, white and living further in the South than, than North Carolina and that you came to North Carolina. Yeah, absolutely, we're progressive in that sense. <laughs> if you came from Alabama, Georgia, uh, South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and you ended up here in North Carolina, you would definitely say that we're progressive. Mm. Been here your entire life, um, you know that to not be your truth. And so it is not my truth that Asheville is progressive. In fact, I think we're backing up a little bit. Oh, really? Um, yeah, that's what I see is that we are either stagnant or we're backing up mm. into, um into post-civil rights is what I feel like. Um, it's just very polished and cleaned up. Mm. But yeah, we're taking steps backwards as a city. It's interesting you say that because I know um, you and I, we met at the Racial Equity Institute and mm -hmm. that and that was, um, it was an eye-opening and um, interesting way because I think a lot of Black families who grew up learning about um, this is the way things really are and whatnot. But that event really taught me to look even farther behind the curtains and seeing things that happened like years ago and how they're 
um, impacting what it is today. So um, kind of how you said, like they polish it up a little bit. I see like a lot of things are, um, I guess, polished, reworded, different kind of language or whatnot as well. Yeah. In everyday life. Mm. Did that, did that event, um, I guess kind of big from there, you probably started to see things for yourself, but did that racial equity Institute event, did that change how you saw Asheville in any way? Oh, most definitely. It equipped me to like, um, I felt like REI changed my, my eyeglass prescription. Oh, <laughs> oh that's a good way of putting it. I like that. Yeah. I wear prescription eyeglasses and after REI, I think my, my prescription was changed. And so, um, yeah, definitely helped me to, um, understand the current, the current ways that we use, um, language to describe racial equity, but they also equipped me with the his- historic, um, languages and terminologies of, um, the lack of racial equity back then. So, yeah. So like I said, it was polished up for us to kind of be perceived as progressive uh, folks in the South here in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. But Aria kind of opened up the the box and said otherwise that, you know, it is pretty much the same. Um, it's just called something different now. And mm-hmm. it's intentional. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest takeaway from Aria was, um, was myself in terms of what is it that I'm doing and uh, how easy it was that I slipped into like this, um, let's call it like a coma. I feel like I've been in a coma for a really long time where I was doing service for my community and I continue mm-hmm. to service my community. Um, and that, you know, oh, this is definitely digging us out of this hole of, of, of the inequities that we experience, you know, me doing my job, serving people, serving my community is digging us out of this hole. When the truth of the matter is, it's based on REI. Um, we're, we're not necessarily fixing anything. We're just trying to patch people up to remain in a, a toxic environment, mm. which yeah, that- is, is not really helping, right? It's just triaging things, but not necessarily getting to the root of the issue. Right. It's like a duct tape fix on a, on a leak or something like that. That was Absolutely. one of the biggest eye openers for me as well. Like a lot of these um, services that um, are really are needed, but they're not really solving the issue. They're just um, fixing things on a surface level. Um, right. That's kind of the wild things. What type of things were you doing in the community that you realize, oh, this may not be enough? Um, yeah. And I, I do want to be transparent to say like, you know, we, we being, you know, myself and you and any other person that can identify that they are uh, serving their community, we are still doing good work. But the, mm-hmm. it does not end there with us just doing that good work. We have to figure out ways to change the environment mm-hmm. around us, um, whether that's home or work or uh, your social circles and networks. Like we have to make sure that those environments support us being healthy, you know, and support us um, striving towards equity, our our racial equity. Mm -hmm. But the things that I've been doing, which are helping to fix people, uh, or or at least um, 
I've served in so many capacities from, you know, case support or, or case manager in terms of uh, folks who set out to want to do something and that something might take them, you know, six months to a year to achieve, whether it be getting their driver's license, getting a GED, um, higher education, a job, um, just a stable home life, you know, a place to live. People would strike out to achieve those things. And my job for a long time was to support them in doing that um, by making sure that, you know, they have access to resources and that they have somebody um, that they can talk to and bounce things off of um, or somebody who's just accountability partner for them, you know. Gotcha. So like someone who may need a license but might not be able to get to the DMV, you would kind of help them um get to the DMV so they could go ahead and do that or like register yeah. to vote or something like that? Yeah, you know, definitely physically making sure that they can access the thing that, that they want, but also helping them to assess, well, how do we get to this point where, you know, you you don't have a driver's license or that, you know, um, you don't have a home, like, because the, the backstory is so important. Mm. In every job that I've had, it's always been, you know, that I service the person and whatever. Mm -hmm they need and whether or not I'm told to do so I always go back to the story that got us here and so I, I want to always make time for people to share their story as to how they got to today um, because that context is often voided because we just need to patch you up right now you know like save this mm. just patch you up now but my my personal interest is in that story um, and then it always ends up playing a, a major part of my job, even though it wasn't asked of me. Oh, really? So you kind of go above and beyond to really see, okay, yeah, we, we're doing what you came here for. We got that done. But now let's really talk about what happened before all the, the dominoes that fell to lead right. you here. So, right. Not, yeah. And in work, it can be called, you know, going above and beyond. But I feel like it's just a human thing, you know, human mm. to listen to somebody's story. But of course, you know, when you got the time clock. Right makes it difficult to listen to those stories. Mm. Do you ever feel kind of pressure to spend less time on the stories and more time just, I guess, um, churning out the tasks that are assigned? Yeah, I feel pressure of that every day. And luckily, my work and the people have proven that it's still a benefit. And so sometimes um, I'll still make the sacrifice and compromise. Uh, with what I'm supposed to be doing to make sure that I also let this human being express themselves, which a lot of the times the world is not necessarily making space and time for just that. Mm. There has to be an outcome after that story. And sometimes there ain't no outcome, you know? People just want to talk. They just want to share. And there's no product to come outside of that. And that's okay. Right, that is okay. Because I feel like sometimes just having the chance to just share what's on your mind and get it off your head, that's... um in a way that could be the outcome, just that kind of relief and kind of grievances. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. right. Do you think it's interesting you also mentioned um, that you're nine on that Ingram scale as a mediator, you mentioned one of eight children. Uh, where, where were you on that scale between like one and eight? Oh, I was number three. Um, number three? Older brothers, yeah. And they are very uh, reliant on me. I was just sitting here texting my big brother, the oldest one out of eight, um, that he's more <laughs> come to Asheville from Florida and spend the night with us and uh, accompany me on a, a camping trip 
And he was like, okay, I'll do this and tell me what else I need. And I was like, ah, it's gone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Family coordinator. <laughs> he like, sis, you know, what do I do? And so I'm number three, but I always felt like number one. Um, yeah, born a leader. Like my mom and I, we tag team definitely raising uh, the family. Yeah. Are you guys all kind of similar ages? At least for the most part, I know there's eight of you guys, but be close in age or is it spread out? Yeah. Oh man, that's the funny part. Walter, we are all a year apart except for the last two. She took like a two year break with them. Oh, that's not even that long. <laughs> right. I was like, it ain't wow. that much of a break, but it was a break. Right. So we all have one year between us and some of us will have an overlapping period of time where we're the same age and so that kind of gives you more context as to how how, how soon all of us came after each other right oh man that's kind of cool growing up you kind of have like your own little army together yeah. <laughs> own community in one house that's that's awesome yeah it's it just me and uh, my younger sibling now yeah i imagine so you definitely have to learn a lot of patience i bet mm-hmm wow yeah. And so you say your brother's in Florida. Is everyone else still in the Asheville area? Um, I don't have very many siblings left here in Asheville. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, there's three of us here. There's three in Greenville, South Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, there is one in Florida, and then there is one who is currently incarcerated. Um, and so, yeah, we, we literally cover uh, a little bit of ground. Wow. So... Do you ever think about leaving Nashville? Every day. Every day. Every day. The past year and a half, yes, I contemplate where else would I like to be. Um, and luckily, me fantasizing about being other places is not to run away from here, which I mm -hmm. see people struggle with that. They, they, they leave from wherever they were in fear of the place that they were. Mm. Um, I'm not going to leave Asheville in fear. I just want to leave Asheville liberated so that I can occupy the spaces as just me and not necessarily searching for something to make me feel more comfortable. Like I'm comfortable with being here. Um, I just have some work that I, I want to do so that if I ever want to come back home, I can find it and identify that this is still home. And right now, if I left and came back, my entire city uh, would not seem as home. And is that because you want to feel like personally liberated or kind of some other factors at play? Yeah, I personally want to be liberated. Um, and what that looks like for me is to just be able to, to look up and see me, see representations of me and my history here in this city, which mm -hmm. um, is extremely hard to do. I find myself in a, a restaurant, uh, a black owned restaurant that serves chicken wings so often that I'm like, I don't even want no more chicken wings. I'm just here. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only black restaurant. <laughs> right. So I'm trying to make sure that, you know, when I come back home, that I don't have to just stop at the chicken chicken spot. You know, I want to be able to stop into a space that also. Uh, I see. That's that's very noble. You're, there was, um, I believe it was the Miseducation of the Negro, that book. Um, don't quote me because I didn't read it, but somewhere they said, um, a lot of times what happens is people in black communities, like if they get a nice job or seek education, they end up leaving 
to go kind of achieve a great things, but then they forget about the community that they left. And so it never improves and they end up just becoming farther and farther away from that community setting instead of staying to fix it. And right. I kind of see with what you just mentioned, you uh, would love to leave somewhere else just to explore something new, but want to make sure that you leave it better than how you found it in a way. So That's right. right. That's, that was put beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that, that that's very noble. I love that because that's um, you're absolutely right. If you can make sure there's other restaurants with so more than just a chicken wing, you know, a sandwich shop, soup, you know, some like a smoothie stand too, come back. Like that just really helps you just continue it to become even better even after you leave. I love that. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. So what... Are you working on that right now, like creating more, I guess, equity or wealth within the community? Yeah. Um, so, of course, in my day-to-day job, um, as you shared, um, I'm a financial counselor and financial educator on so many different topics. Um, but my personal development has been in and around um, opening up a coffee shop here in Asheville. Oh, really? Yeah. And people are like, oh, you love coffee, huh? And I'm like... I like coffee. I do love it sometimes. <laughs> but it's not about the coffee. It's about a physical space where people of color can feel, again, just represented. And the only reason I know why that's so important is because I, I remember a few years ago, maybe five now, five years ago, going into a coffee shop that I frequented often. Mm-hmm. That day, um, everything just hit me that there is not a single uh paint chip or person in this building that represents me and my culture. Mm. Um, and I just literally, I feel like I had the smile wiped off my face while I was buying that coffee that morning. Um, and I was like, this is not okay. Cause I'm like, I've been here my entire life. Um, the generations before me have been here uh, two generations, at least before I, I came to be have been here. And there's mm-hmm. nothing here that, that has our um, our mark on it. And and I don't want to mark it up to just claim it as mine. I just want to go somewhere to feel remembered. Mm-hmm. And remember my... Right, because you know that you did that. Right, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's, and I want to make a, a culturally um, welcoming space for Black people uh, from anywhere, but specifically the ones who have had their roots... Um, and their time invested in this place. Yeah. What's the name of the coffee shop? Oh, I would call it Black Coffee and Culture. Black Coffee and Culture. Yeah. That's. I love it as a coffee shop too because it's. I go to coffee shops to work a lot, and you're right. It is like, oftentimes mostly occupied by white people, and it's so interesting that. Like when the new coffee shop opens up, it's like a form or like a symbol of like gentrification on the way. Like if a Starbucks is coming, I was talking to someone about, oh, yeah, I was thinking about opening up a Starbucks. And then they're like, oh, no, don't do that because then, you know, gentrification comes with it. I was just yeah. thinking of it as like a, like, you know, a place to make money. But um, yeah, and you opening it up, making it culturally welcome to black people, it's almost like a, um, uh, how would I put it? I think a lot of times there's a stereotype that black people don't drink coffee for whatever reason. Um, but you opening up, making it known that 
welcoming to black people just kind of um like stops that opposite force and be like hold up no this is not just your thing this is our thing as well and kind of putting more ownership into you know the black community too i love it yes um you said something and i was like that's right you said um you know, black people, there's this notion that black people do not drink coffee. And I was like, you know, when I was writing a lot of my proposals and grant requests to fund this project, um, Mm -hmm. I had to mention that, you know, that's not true. Like we drink coffee. Granted, my grandma is only going to drink Folgers because she's just old school and she only wants it from home. Mm -hmm. Part of what I wanted to do with the shop is to make sure that we don't exclude anybody by what it is that we offer for a product, you know? And so I want the, I want my grandma in my shop, you know what I mean? And I want her to feel comfortable and welcome as a black woman from here to come into that shop and not feel washed out by whiteness. Um, Mm, And then on the other side, I want those gentrification dollars. So I already know that people love coffee, you know? Mm -hmm. that analogy that you were saying, you know, with the Starbucks thing, when they come to town, it's an indicator that here comes gentrification. And so um, with knowing that that's what's happening here in Asheville, I want to be able to, I want to be able to um, offer uh, a space for everybody, which means, you know, white people too would occupy the space, but it's more so to get those gentrifying dollars. <laughs> hmm Love that. And you you already submitted the proposals and everything? Um, I've submitted a few grant application proposals. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them uh, were not able to fund my project. Mm-hmm. More Most recently, um, I also applied to be a part of SONG, which I've mentioned is the Southerners on New Ground uh, organization. And that that fellowship is what it is, uh, comes with some financial support as well. And so, you know, it wasn't the type of cash that I need in terms of uh, capital to do my mm-hmm. project, but it is a great start. And more so, I think the the benefit that I'm getting from song is not monetarily, but it's very much um, the healing and the, the the network that I need to to push my, my project forward. Oh, really? Where Mm-hmm. You said Southerners on Southerners on New Ground. Yeah. What um, what is it like being a part of that group? Well, we had our first um in person meeting just this past weekend, and um, it was it was just healing to be in a room of thirty five black queer people, black queer and trans people, um which I never thought I'd find myself in such a group because it's a bit radical uh, for me to consider yeah. organizer or an activist. I'm very much a mediator and I don't like to stir things up, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I just issues, you know, solve problems. And so being in this space, um, I was met with the opposite. Um, I was very comfortable. I was very much um, able to see how organizing is, is in so many different packages and that uh, having a network of people that, you know, such the ones that were at the gathering over the past weekend with song, having that network of people is um, no amount of money 
can can get me that and this is also needed yeah yeah especially now because um it's it's interesting black queer and trans you said that's um kind of what the group mm -hmm. of. That, yes. that is powerful because that's a lot of voices all in one group and i think uh, when you have just one person like just a black person you know that could be a powerful voice and you have just say a queer person another powerful way trans another but all together that creates like so much more support behind it too so you could really go a little farther especially in uh, times like these where you know there's some attention towards um, these groups of people but not always a lot of support that's right mm -hmm. nice so um it's a group of i guess people like you who are looking for opportunities um so it's called a leadership development group and mm. luckily the implication with this specific group song there is no implication that you did not have that leadership quality before mm -hmm. what this is is aiming to um they are asking of us to come up with uh or to at least declare what it is that we want to do for a year in terms of of uh, developing further our leadership skills and qualities that we already have. So you get to do somewhat of a self-assessment. Mm -hmm. Self-assessment and uh, a group assessment. And then on a larger scale, there'll be a group project. And so it's just, yeah, it's just so much support and um, networking that is helping you strive towards whatever cause that you wanted to work on. But, you know, you'll do that plus something bigger than yourself. Yeah. That is wonderful. And that's there in Asheville. Um, so song is, um, again, Southerners on the ground. And so what that really means is that song is located all up and down the East Coast, um, starting from Virginia on down. Oh, wow. So really anyone can kind of sign up and join. Anybody could. Absolutely. Um, it was more so of like an invitation gotcha. um, to those of us who identify as queer or trans for starters and also black queer and trans. Mm -hmm. So this is it was kind of like a headhunt for who got these invitations, it seems like. Oh, okay. So you got the special yeah. invite. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm I'm very honored and proud to be um a part of this. I didn't know what it meant until after this weekend. So mm -hmm. now I can fully say that I'm I'm honored to be a part of this and I'm extremely proud to be able to do what I do as a black um lesbian woman living in the South. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. How is it living in Asheville as a black lesbian woman? I once again this is kind of like um how it's talked about. So I kinda of wanna mm -hmm. hear you from your perspective and your life, but um it seems like Asheville kinda of going to that progressive mindset, it seems like it's pretty like friendly to the LG um LGBT communities. Would you say that's accurate in your own life? Um, Asheville is Asheville can definitely hold space for um, a lesbian woman. Uh, mm -hmm. I, and I think that that space gets tighter and more challenging as a black lesbian. Mm. 
But yeah, you will definitely come to Asheville and notice that we hold space for our queer people. And they are they are well taken care of and well protected and, and very much known in the community. But I think when you add another layer to that, another description to that and, and put black in front of it, um, that's when you start to get into some stuff. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, lesbian so society, I, like sure, open doors, but oh, black, oh. Right, and I'm like, cool, I'm glad that I can see that, that there's a difference, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very apparent, and I will say that after having a weekend gathering with song participants, mm-hmm. um, I was unaware that me being a black woman, identifying as lesbian in the South, has privilege um, because there is another group of people who do not get the privilege that I get to walk around in. And I would say that that's, um, those are our queer brothers, or excuse me, our trans brothers and sisters don't have mm. that I have um, to just be me and to be super gay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Be, right. Uh, it gets a little bit more dangerous and challenging as a trans woman or a trans man of color. Yeah, I know in the South is very like um, it's kind of interesting because I, I now that you say that, I see what you're talking about. Like kind of um, there is a lot more kind of social acceptance with being a lesbian now, but for like trans, I feel like that's kind of same energy that being gay got before. So I see that happening with the trans communities now. It's definitely like uh, mm-hmm. we don't like to talk about it, and when they do, it's just. You know what people say now? It's like, oh, you know, whatever you do, you do it. But that kind of leads to more um, ignorance and kind of discrimination as well. That yeah. community is just, yeah. Hmm. So I want to pivot just a little bit. Um, your role as a financial counselor mm-hmm. in your city. So what all, what exactly does that mean for you and your community? Ooh, what it really means for me and my community is that there is a black woman mm-hmm. who is confident and proud to offer financial counseling, which is a very uh, intimate space. I'm, I'm able and confident to offer that to other people of color, but not just people of color, but to everybody. And I think that there's a benefit in offering it to everybody instead of just offering it exclusively to people of color that the you know the the people of color who who are able to sit in front of me with financial counseling um which they bring themselves nobody is ever forced to come here uh so people are voluntarily coming to have counseling around their finances and uh I'm I'm just grateful to be able to provide that to people of color, but I'm I'm also uh, I feel like I'm in a daily uh, position of being educated or educating others when that person is not a person of color. I know that very few white people in this area of of Western North Carolina have close ties to people of color. It's just mm-hmm. not that it really happens. Um, and I I think it's fascinating that majority of my clients are white 
and I get to offer them this financial um, lens and support in my black body. Yeah, that is powerful. Teaching finance to um, <laughs> white communities. Yeah. It's liberating. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, you carry the, <laughs> it's like you're carrying the torch and now they have to follow you. But um, wow. Do you, do you find that they are kind of have the same energy as far as like they're voluntarily coming to seek counseling from you or is it kind of like a surprise for them? Um, it could be both. Um, mm-hmm. we see so many people, I see so many people within a week that, um, you know, a handful of them are very much surprised that it's me. And, mm-hmm. um, that used to be a little bit of a, a challenge for me to see that and witness that surprise. Cause I'm like, Hey, you know, what was the problem? You were, you were game before you saw me, like keep that same energy, you know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, I learned a lot in how to deal with that. Um, And the way that I'm dealing with it is something that I know how to name now, thanks to song, but I have been doing it all all along before, is uh, I think being able to to identify that, you know, we have to be responsible for our own emotions and actions. Mm -hmm. So the people who do have that shocking reaction to me, they got to deal with it. That's not me. I'm still here to serve. Um, they need to be responsible for their emotions around uh, why it might be strange or uncomfortable to be working with me. Um, And I think that, you know, part of that responsibility for them to take inventory of their own emotions and actions is, is far beyond this office space. You know, if they had that reaction right here, and I don't choose to help them get through that reaction or those emotions, that means that they get to go home and do that work themselves. Mm. If they do so, and I'm not here to help them feel more comfortable of being around, being around black people or receiving services uh, from black people. And so I, I really, I, I indulge in that moment where there's a surprise and I'm not going to even acknowledge the fact that, you know, you're surprised that this black woman is is who is about to support you towards whatever you want to do. Um, you got to go home and deal with that on your own. And yeah. That's powerful. I think a lot of times we're taught to make people comfortable being around you. It's not always like a for them thing, but more of like a survival aspect. But um, wow. So you, so you say like once you started to realize, okay, I don't need to commit or I'm I'm not responsible for how they react or their emotions. You're still going to be you. That's when you started feeling more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Oh. How long did it take you to figure that out? Mm, I'll probably say three. It took three years out of the four that I've been here. So I've really been leaning into and enjoying more so this fourth year of my mm-hmm of my tenure here at the organization. And like I said, it's because now these things have names, you know, now they have context. Of how, how does that work? How does that thing work? Um, and what I learned is that if I take responsibility for my emotions and I leave the client to take responsibility for their emotions, then mm-hmm. we both way um, 
you know, bigger and taller and, and more expanded than we were mm-hmm. at this engagement. Um, Cause I had to put my stuff aside too, Walter. Yeah. In the beginning of my, my, um, my employment with this organization, I was asked to go out into rural, even more rural areas of Western North Carolina. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out why do you want to send the, the woman with the locks and, you know, the black mm-hmm. locks who is also, you know, a lesbian into rural Western North Carolina. Why would y'all do that is what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, what I had to learn in that, in those moments is that those are my emotions and I need to take responsibility for them. And as soon as I did, Walter, I mean, my work transformed. Um, instead really? of very opposed to, yeah, working with, you know, older white men from two counties away from here, which is basically just to imply that they're deep in the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, to go there with my own, you know, bias and my own defense already drawn before I even see them was something that I needed to take responsibility for. And and like I said, when I did, it made the engagement so much better. Um, because oftentimes that, that older white man doesn't mean any harm, or sometimes they do. But when I can control my, or take inventory of my emotions and be responsible for them, then it's just them who are left to deal with theirs. You know what I mean? So 50% of the work is done right there. I feel like if I can just take responsibility for my emotions. Mm. I've heard of um, kind of take responsibility for my emotions and I feel like I practice that, but I feel like what you're doing is like a whole nother level. It's a whole nother sphere. Um, man, what do you have like a mantra or something you say to yourself to kind of like keep yourself in check or like, how do you, how are you able to control, I guess, or um, accept your emotions and let them, I guess not let them change your attitude or fears or whatnot. Um, you know, one one tactic, no, there's not a mantra, but there are a few tactics and, and I'll use them interchangeably, you know, depending on the day. But one is uh is the listening part. You remember I was saying earlier how important it is to share your story. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it takes, you know, sixty seconds or, or you know, hours to do so. Um, you know, imagine going into a, a, you know, the back of the woods sort of county and serving someone um, that, you know, on the cover, it looks like y'all don't have anything in common. You know what I mean? He's from the deep, deep woods, uh, identify as the girl from the city, the inner city, and um, allowing him to share that story of who he is really helps me to take responsibility for my emotions instead of me drawing conclusions and sticking with what I see on the outside. There's so much, mm. you know, to that person, then there's more to that man than a rebel flag. There's more to that person than, a you know, a, a pickup truck with big tires or, or them living in rural North Carolina. There's more to them than that. And I think that we all deserve a chance to share our story. Um, and that also means that oftentimes they have to hear my side too. Mm-hmm. And so kind of leading with empathy. Absolutely. I mean, that alone, um, letting people share their stories or making making space for them to share that story 
is one of my tools. Uh, the other ones I would say are probably um, based from the four agreements. Um, the four agreements have definitely helped shape my adult life. Um, and one of my favorites is, is to not assume anything. Not assume anything. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah, you're right. I like about what you said, like don't draw conclusions with people listening. What what are the four agreements? I I feel like that sounds familiar. And as you start speaking, my pop. But what what are they? Um, don't make assumptions. Is one of my favorites. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Um, always do your best. Which that is to say, you know, from day to day, your best does not look the same. Mm -hmm. um, don't make assumptions. Always do your best. Uh, what are the other two? Don't make assumptions. Do your best. I'm looking them up, of course, because we have to <laughs> at the tip of our fingers. Uh, be impeccable with your word. Ooh, that one is so much fun. Mm. That basically means don't gossip. It's not healthy. Um, but being impeccable with your word is something that I've been practicing with my friends. And they're like, can we ever, you know, have a session with you where we just bash people? And I'm like, yes, you can <laughs> participate in that way. I will listen, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a part of that. Cause I, right. Don't I, expect anything from me. <laughs> right. Don't I'll participate, but silently. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and then don't take anything personally. So do your best. Don't make assumptions. Don't take anything personal and be impeccable with your word. We're taking a quick break because I wanted to tell you about Inclusion, the company I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So Inclusion is a tech startup that provides a freelance marketplace and they're building a job board for companies that want to hire diverse talent for remote positions. And they are hosting their first ever happy hour and virtual speed networking event on June 25th from 6 to 9 p.m. This event will allow you to connect with others one-on-one -on -one for at least eight minutes, chat about you, the things you're doing, and really get to know um, the other person in the chat room. They also have a nice virtual lounge room where you can really connect with anyone and everyone who joins. And I, I like this event because I think this that now more than ever is the time to take advantage of these virtual events to connect with people from outside of your physical community. So... If you're a freelancer, hiring manager, recruiter, business owner, or anyone who's looking for a job right now, this event is for you. Tickets are available now, so click the link. I added one to the description and sign up before the event is sold out. Um, if you're unable to click the link, then you can visit our website, www.bosslocks.org. And um, in the show notes, I'll have a link and more information there, so you can um, sign up if you're interested. Thanks, and back to our show. That's how you do it. And so, kind of speak further on like the financial counseling side, because I think that's something that now I'm starting to see more people paying more attention to financial literacy. I know I am, but you see like 21 Savage, I mean like the, mm -hmm. um, I forgot what he calls Jay. it, but he's, the, the oh yeah, and Jay-Z of course, yeah. Like I see a lot, a lot more people creating these programs, camps, teaching specifically to the black community as well. Um, what, 
what's something about financial education, literacy, or maybe like a tip or something that you feel that everyone should understand? Oh, um, a tip would be um, whatever it is that you're doing in your life or, or however you engage in your life. This is a personal tip that I, I it just popped up in my head. I feel like it's an epiphany. Mm-hmm. There are so many um, signs and signals and, and uh, blatant messages in front of our face that are telling us to open that door, open that conversation right there. And and you just mentioned, you know, hip hop and how um, a lot of our iconic figures in hip hop are starting to talk about finances mm-hmm. and just how important it is to be aware of of that 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 nature around you know managing your finances or just being aware of them um and so i would say you know the next time you listen to music the next time you're watching television or the radio or talking to people and you hear anything mentioned around finances whether that be they mentioned their credit they mentioned uh that they're broke they mentioned that they about to get paid like open that door up like have a conversation um you know, not a structured one, but just, you know, ask a question, be curious, because we all are very curious about the world of money management. And and, and to, cor- to correct a little bit of your language, we call it financial capabilities right now, because the financial literacy term implies that we must have been illiterate before receiving that literacy, and we're not. Mm. So we are all capable. And financial we want to that you know people understand that you are very much capable or else you'd be dead because you didn't manage capabilities <laughs> so, is what we lean into and um you know so if it's popping up you know whether it's a rapper who mentioned something about credit or or your grandma said something about spending money um open that door up like i feel like we've been getting our little our little uh there's bait all around you grab it Grab it. And be Double real down. with the conversation, yeah, around money. If you don't start talking to your friends and family about money and and, and just being leaning into those the, your capabilities around managing your money, if we don't do that, then we're just literally perpetuating this cycle of not talking about it and then relying on organizations such as the one that I work for to bring you fully up to speed which is okay, but I want us to do some of that work and initiate it on our own because the conversation is all around us. It's just that nobody wants to step into it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that, like oh, sorry, it's like a spades game. You know, like, if, have you ever watched like a group of people play spades? Mm-hmm. And you, you're like, man, I want to play, but mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> it's intimidating, you know? Right. It took me a long nah, time. To, actually, I still don't even know how to play space to be like 100% transparent okay. because every single time, like people are like, oh yeah, jump in, we'll teach you. I'm like, oh no, I can't just it's jump It's intimidating. In. Yeah. Lean in, get into it. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> get I'm in that jump, game. I'm going to jump at the table. <laughs> mm-hmm. Man. So do you think like some of these conversations should be around like salaries, like how much people are making at work? Oh, you know what? I just read something that said that uh, we all should be actually discussing our salaries because behind it, you often find the bias. Mm-hmm. You find the bias, you find the blatant racism, you find the systematic structural inequities. 
because we didn't want to talk about it. But as soon as you found out a little bit, you you belligerent, you pissed. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, there was a time where like I thought, uh, you know, I was getting paid like similar to everyone else, and there were been people there before me who were there longer. But then like I heard someone mention, I was like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, talk about it. Whatever, whenever, whatever mm-hmm. comes up. Strike that little match of curiosity, and man, I tell you, like things will blow up from there. Sometimes it's not the best, you know, thing that comes out of that. Leaning into that conversation, you might walk away a little bit empty. You feel mm-hmm. like something from you, but even that comes with a purpose. I mean, if somebody you know left you on empty after talking about money. You know, in terms of them filling you up or leaving you dry, if you walk away empty, you know, maybe that's just making room for you to fill it with something more intentional. But if you walk away from that conversation, you know, filled up with something that you did not have before, that's success too. So I'm looking at it from both sides, you know, the benefit of us having discussions around money in all sorts of ways, formal ways, informal ways, um, Good, bad, and ugly. Like we have to talk about this stuff, and bigger. There's a benefit to it. Hmm. You know, one other question I want to ask you is: Do you think there's any correlation between like financial security and mental health? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Um, financial security, uh, or just accessing. Uh, Access to money, access to money is definitely impacting people's mental health. Um, I, for one, have have full health insurance. Fortunately, my company pays for that. I don't put anything towards it whatsoever, 100% paid. Mm-hmm. But what I'm learning, Walter, is that when I go to seek, um, when I go to use my benefits in the form of a mental health provider providing me with service, Mm-hmm. there's still a, a monetary barrier there um, I got pretty good health insurance I make pretty decent money but Walter to be honest I feel like it's wrong that I'm still coming out of my pocket with my resource to ensure that my mental health is being taken care of mm-hmm. and if if I feel like if I know I'm in a good financial position and I still have a financial barrier to accessing mental health. I can only imagine what, you know, other people are experiencing. And so, yeah, I mean, this is like a, I mean, it's not like we, we went and picked up a mental illness. We didn't purchase it off the shelf at Walmart. <laughs> it's a symptom of some of these structural inequities mm-hmm. you know, that we are traumatized and that we are, uh, impacted in severely negative ways um, and not by choice. You know what I mean? It's literally taking a walk on the sidewalk, left you traumatized because of the way people looked at you or the fact that you were, you know, stopped and frisked or, you know, asked too many questions by law enforcement just for walking down the street. I should not have to pay to go and undo that trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way you put that we didn't pick this up at the store. Yeah. So we've been left with being responsible for it, but it's not like we didn't do it to ourselves, you know? Right. I feel like I'm cleaning up other people's messes sometimes when I go and pay my therapist. <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. I'm 
own this. And, and I like acknowledging those parts. But then when we get super deep, I'm like, man, I'm paying for, you know, somebody else's thing. And this ain't right. Because mm. I don't source to sustain it, however long it might take. <laughs> All right. Man, how how long have you sought out mental health? If you don't um, mind me asking. No, I don't mind. Um, actually, I only um, sought it out as a recommendation from my boss. Um, they wanted to um, support me in uh, figuring out ways to not be so uh, disassociative. Um, meaning I have a, a nature, a skill even, I'll call it. I had mm. a therapist would tell me that that's a skill. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I have a skill of being able to disassociate. I can be right there in the room with you, following you completely, but mm-hmm. I'm check out. And um, sometimes that was healthy for me and other times it wasn't and it could impact the way that I work, mm. quality of work. And so my... Um, my leadership was able to say, hey, you know, if you want to go, we'll give you so many hundreds of dollars and pay for it. I was like, yeah, I'm down. <laughs> you know, wow. oh. And that was an eye-opening experience looking for adequate um, providers, mental health providers. Uh, I went through quite a few that did not work out and could not understand that I wanted them to approach my mental health with a racial equity lens. Mm. And so I went through a few because they were not able to do that. Right. I've been able, fortunately enough, to find one that respects me and and does exactly what it is that I ask of them, which is to, whatever we talk about, make sure you apply this racial equity lens to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you really kind of have to, because that's really your life. And I guess someone who doesn't understand that part of it may not be able to assist you in the best possible way. Right. Mm. So that's for two years two years mm-hmm. lovely yeah i think that might be kind of my next challenge finding ways to bring um i guess like therapists it kind of bridging that gap creating more access so that that financial barrier isn't as prevalent right so um mm. and thanks for sharing all that too i appreciate you opening up i think that's a conversation that isn't being had enough I'm starting to get more popular now, and I think people are coming to see that it's needed, and more people are open to sharing about their own experiences. But yeah, thank you. Yep. Now, I want to ask a couple questions. Um, There's no right or wrong answer, just seeing like your thoughts on it. What does professionalism mean to you? Um, off the bat, professionalism means um, you do what you do with integrity, which is even outside of professionalism, but it's definitely got an emphasis. About professionalism, you should have integrity in what you do. Um, and so if in any moment of you sizing your professionalism, you're not doing it with integrity, well, you've slipped out of professionalism and you just you. <laughs> <laughs> right. so I feel like it's got to be approached with integrity. So if you're doing something and you feel great about it and you know you're doing the right thing, you know, you feel all of that within you, then, you know, that's professionalism. And I've seen that packaged in so many different ways. Um, 
I think I get some of the greatest professionalism from the least expected uh, environments. Uh, All right. McDonald's and Chick Fil A. All uh, right. Yeah, you're talking about professionalism. I'm mm-hmm. like, how is it? You know, in that service industry of you know serving burgers and fries, is it that they can uh, exhaust more professionalism and and, and make an example out of it more so than the people who have offices and cubicles. So, I mean, the fact that it it comes in so many packages, I try to make sure that I bring that in as, in as many applicable spaces as possible. So if we are in the grocery store and you, you do bring up something revolving around your finances, because, you know, you know, my face from a, or, or a campaign or something like I'm going to still approach you with my professionalism um, in the grocery store or, or, you know, at the club, like point blank work <laughs> <laughs> because I don't need you to think that I'm not capable of that. Love that answer. And do you, so that sounds like it has nothing to do with like a clean look or anything. Do you think that your appearance and I like present yourself has, has to tie into professionalism? In any shape or form? I think my behavior ties into it the most. And then mm. everything else is kind of second to my behavior, to my actions. Um, I've been professional in a six foot green Barney suit. You know mm. what I mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll go out yeah. with children, financial capabilities, dressed in a six foot green dinosaur. And I'm going to be as, as professional as possible. And then I'm going to take that suit off and I'm going to go and put, you know, the crisp, clean slacks with the button up and pull my hair up and be tailored, you know. And so, right. yeah, definitely. But my actions and my behaviors are what speaks to my professionalism first. And a few years ago, a gentleman told me that um, he works for HR for a local community college here. He said, I saw this woman in the Walmart parking lot one day getting out of her car, a black woman, and uh, she was on her phone and she was yelling and screaming and using profanity like she was going off in the parking lot at Walmart. Mm -hmm. He was like, you know, she's at Walmart. She does what she wants to do. He says, well, Mm -hmm. lo and behold, two weeks later, very same woman applied for an HR position at his job. Mm -hmm. And he is the head this black man. And uh, he says, absolutely not. He says, you know, I, I couldn't. He said, because in that moment, granted, she was in her own element. But he said after that interaction, he was like, you know, she doesn't have the professionalism that, you know, he wanted to see in the job. And so he used that against her, you know. Mm. And so I think oftentimes what we think we don't have to be professional and that we, you know, if you ratchet by night and professional by day, you got to make sure that, you know, understand that people are watching you, even though you think that it's, you know, it's closing time or nobody's looking and I can just, you know, go back ratchet, be, beware. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and that's not to take away from there. who you are, but, you know, is there a healthy balance for you to exercise both, you know, show up as your full self at work? And make sure that they understand who you are after work. But also after work, make sure that you preserve some of that that quality that, that makes you who you are at work. Thank you for that answer. I love that answer too, by the way. Um, so another, did you hear about, it happened last year, uh, 
named Andrew Johnson. He's a high school wrestler. And he was told, like, moments, literally moments before his match, that he either had to cut his hair or forfeit his wrestling match. Did you hear about that? No. Wait, sorry, say that again? I said no. I, I had never heard that. Yeah. Yeah, He um, and he had wrestling matches before previously, so he's definitely been... And environments where his school and also other kind of referees, officials, they uh, said nothing about it. But this one particular uh, basically was able to interpret the rules to his own liking. But um, I bring that up to ask you, have you ever been faced with the ultimatum like that regarding your hair? Uh, other than my mother? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, right. I've definitely been um, approached by her to, you know, mm-hmm. get Anna, like, you know, you cannot wear your fro. Um, I'm like, why? Uh, and so, but nah, not really. Um, I think that uh, the rest of me presents, um, and let's be frank here, in a white world, the rest of me pre- pre- presents well enough mm-hmm. that I feel like my might be the compromise for them. Mm. I just able so, to see the value. I think, yeah, they know that if anything were to ever be mentioned <laughs> about this hair, everything could be lost. You're not getting me anymore. You're not getting none of me. If you can't take all of me, you're not getting none of it. Oh wow! So if you're presented with the opportunity to get like that perfect job, um, perfect lifestyle, um, mm-hmm. but in order to do so, you had to like cut your hair. You, you'd be like, nope. I'd be like, hell no. Hell no. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Hell no for 5000 please. I'm not sure. <laughs> so would you say, do you consider your hair, do you consider it a hairstyle or a lifestyle? Mm, I did my hair. I, I locked my hair out of convenience several years ago, about seven and a half years ago. Mm-hmm my hair out of convenience because I was on the go and um, my hair is, is kind of fine. And so, you know, a little bit of moisture or a little bit of, of um, something that I didn't ask for that day would literally turn my hair into a, a, a cotton ball, a big old poof. Oh yeah. And so I was like, man, I got to hold this because I was extremely sensitive on keeping it nice and neat back when I was younger mm-hmm. to get it nice. Um, and so I, twisted it and the more and more uh, ragged my hair became, you know, in terms of like, it was like super frizzy and, and uh, just all over the place. I, I leaned into it more and more. And I was like, you know, I dare you, I dare somebody to tell me to go and clean it up. Mm-hmm. And so I kept it. And then eventually it locked up for good. And um, I started wanting to have it tailored. I wanted to have my hair, um, you know, now that it's, this is my defiant look, you know, is what mm-hmm. I was, um, I wanted to clean it up. I wanted to polish it up. And so I remember the first time I went to a loctician, um, sitting in her chair and, and allowing her to, you know, like massage my scalp and then mm. up and looked at what she did. I was just proud. And so, yeah, I would say today it, it is my life my lifestyle, my way of life. 
started as a convenient way to style your hair, but turned into a lifestyle. Work. Mm. And so your hair care routine now um, still involve going to a loctician? No, I stopped going to my loctician, um, which sometimes I just want to go sit with her and not have my hair, you know, oh, style. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, I'm in a, a loving relationship where um, the, uh, my partner is very talented and, and they are um, much more enthused about hairstyles and manicuring my hair than I am. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm benefiting from my relationship being um, in one that my partner can style. They can be creative and they can hear me say I'm not really going for that look right now and this is how I feel and so they give me something to, to match how I feel oh nice wow that's like a true like relationship bonding moment too kind of yeah it is such a bonding moment I love having them do it I ain't gonna lie I resist it when they mention it I'm like I don't want to I feel like a little kid <laughs> and I'm like I don't want to sit on the floor for like two hours right but then they set that up for me to the point where I feel just as uh, I feel just as loved as the first time I sat in my loctician's chair, and so yeah, they really make me feel comfortable when they do it because I'm just antsy and I don't want to sit down. Mm-hmm. Man, that's beautiful. All right, now one other thing I want to bring. I'm not sure if you heard about this, but the Crown Act it was passed in the state of California. And it yeah. um, was written by Senator, um, oh, I can't put your name, Holly J. Mitchell, uh, Senator California. Have you you've heard about it? Is this when they're banning it or? They actually passed a bill that protects people with natural hair. So um, you no longer discriminate people in hiring decisions or any anything related to the job based on natural hair. And then the city of New York, um, this one's just a city thing, but the city of New York has like a fine, basically. So any company caught discriminating based on natural hair um, could be fined. I don't remember the dollar amount, but it's in the thousands. Okay. Yeah. So these are, it's really only the state of California and the city of New York as of this moment, but kind of hearing that, and these are both passed this year, but kind of hearing that there are some changes, um, what... How does that make you feel or what thoughts do you have towards that? Well, I'm very grateful that somebody is fighting that um, at issue. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm grateful. And at the, on the same line, I'd say that that's ridiculous, you know, that we have to, that somebody is, is in, investing their time and energy and money into advocating for something that is like, what? That's none of your business. And that's not a, a, a measuring point or, or impact driver for determining how much work or how, 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 you know, how high is the quality of your work? Mm-hmm. Like my socks, none of that matters to anybody else other than me. I put my hair up because it made me comfortable. I put these socks on because they made me comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I- how we've gotten to a point in life where somebody exercised their privilege to the point um, of saying, I, I, I'm uncomfortable. I don't like that when they do that. And I'm like, that ain't none of your business. That ain't gonna, that doesn't hurt you, you know? 
um, it's just it's it blows my mind, Walter, that you know people are employed or put to work advocating some of these points. I, I feel like you know I would much rather, and I, again, I'm glad they're fighting for me to have my liberty of you know, not being discriminated against about my hair if I were to reside in those places. But dang, I'm like, that's right. where some is having to be put. And yeah, that, that's it just blows my mind that we, we have those sorts of arguments or advocacy groups. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that's... um. Yeah, I completely agree with you. That's kind of one of our, with Boss Laws, kind of the mission is to change that perception um, worldwide. Because like, you know, back in 2016, it was the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. I think the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that basically said um, companies are allowed to um, not hire someone based on their hair. And it kind of came up this kind of chain of like court cases and sued um the EOC had reached out based on behalf of Chastity Jones because she was given a job offer but was rescinded because the hiring manager was like, ah, oh, you know, hair tends to get a little messy, basically. So it's, mm. yeah, it's crazy that, and that was 2016, three years ago. Um, oftentimes it's something that's hard to prove, discriminated based on natural hair, but yeah, it's definitely a real thing. Yeah. Well, um, Henry, I know you got to go. You got to get back to work. She's on the clock, but I want to thank you very much for taking the time today to kind of share your story, what you're doing in your community. Um, it's definitely very powerful. And any way whatsoever I can support, I give my 100% support. But um, and before we go, is there anything else you wanted to speak on or say, talk about? Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity and. When you offered this invitation at REI, I was like, what? Yeah, sign me up. Um, again, this was exactly what we started this conversation on is how important it is to me for people to be able to share stories, um, have dialogue, have an investment in time with um, another person or another group of people um, is part of this work too. And so I'm super grateful for the opportunity to be able to to share my experiences and to um, to witness your your genuine curiosity. Like I that goes a long way with me when people are for real, for real interested, you know, and mm-hmm. small talk. And so thank you for pouring into my cup. I feel like I'm I'm good, you know. I'm I still have a healthy amount in my cup um, after this conversation. And you definitely poured into it. Um, yeah, and I, I love being black. I love being a boss. I love my locks. I love me. And I love my people, too. Thank you all for listening to Boss Locks, a show that is redefining professionalism. And... You know, one thing that is really cool about this podcast is that we often only look to the future or what's happening right now, but we rarely take a moment to just reflect on how much we've grown. I know just from listening to the past conversations I've had, um, 
in the past, it's shown me just how more comfortable I am compared to when I first started when I really did not want my voice to be recorded at all. And that's why I find moments like the one I'm about to share so special. Uh, today's interview was recorded about this time last year. And when I checked in with Anna Marie about publishing today's episode, she shared some really great news. She shared that she has recently become the a director for a local nonprofit in Nashville called Green Opportunities. She is also offering um, financial education and counseling um, independently, like all on her own. She's um, offering these services to black people, which is following her dream to see economic justice in motion for black people in her community. You know, um, she, she, um, she shared that not only is her dream to see it, but she really is looking forward to feeling that there is economic justice in motion for black people within her community, her city, and that she's dedicated to being exactly where her people need her and where her gut leads her. And, you know, just hearing stories um, like news like this is just really inspiring and just fills me up with hope. Um, and it's just really powerful because it reminds me of what you know, each of our guests have shared so far, which is when you truly know yourself and understand your value, you'll either find or create opportunities to pursue your dreams. And we're really seeing someone, um, we're really seeing Anna Marie, who is, who was already kind of creating and following her dreams, but now she's really finding new ways to do it independently and also work with um, nonprofit organizations who are doing some really amazing things in our city so um yes if you if you'd like to learn more about uh the organization and what Anna Marie is doing we have some links in our in our description or you can visit our website www.bosslocks.org and that is um www.b-o-s-s-l-o-c-k-s now the last thing I want to share is just like, please, please, please take some time for yourself this week. Um, this year has been a lot. And while a lot of what we're experiencing right now isn't new, um, it's still a lot to experience all at once. And it's just really important to take some time to just check in with yourself and your loved ones to really understand how you're feeling and what the people around you are experiencing. And if if anything else, you can always check in with me as I'm happy to either listen or direct you to a safe space for you to share your thoughts and your feelings. Um, I'm in no way a trained professional and um, I just think it's important to talk to someone at times like these. And I don't care where you're located, if we've never spoken before and honestly I don't I don't know all I know is that um, we're all we got and we have to get through this together so please reach out to me on my website's contact form uh, reach out to me on social media at bosslocks that's b-o-s-s-l-o-c-k-s or email me at info at bosslocks.org uh, thank you for listening and we will see you next time